Amen. All right. Now what it's about? Letting it shine. Amen. That's good. John chapter 13 tonight. John chapter 13. John chapter 13. We're going to read just that one verse and we're going to kind of pick up a little bit. We'll, we'll review a little bit from last week. Then we're going to pick up where we left off. Uh, John chapter 13, verse 21. <clears throat> glad to see you. Boy, I'm glad the air's working tonight. Eh? Some of you ladies aren't, but I am. I'm extremely, extremely excited. Life is good again. John chapter 13, beginning verse 21. So, well, just let's look at that one verse. The Bible says, When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified, and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. One of you shall betray me. And of course, as we mentioned last week, we noted that it would be Judas. And of course, at the time, the disciples were somewhat uh, flabbergasted of the thought that even they would, one of them could possibly deny the Lord Jesus Christ or betray Him. Uh, they were looking at one another. Is it I, Lord? Is it, is it Him? Is it me? Is it you? I don't know who it would be. I... I don't know, and yet it was Judas. Probably Judas wasn't, you know, Judas obviously appeared to be just like the rest of them. It's funny, isn't it? You can look like everyone else, but still be Judas. You can act like everybody else, but still be Judas. It's pretty sad, isn't it? I wonder if there's any Judases tonight. I wonder. See, I can't answer that question, only you can. Is it I? That's the question that Judas asked. He knew all along, probably, don't you think? Do you think that he was well aware of it, or do you think it just came upon him? We know the devil entered into him, but every once in a while, you've got to wonder, was he lying to himself? I've got to believe he knew what he was and what he was doing. Things aren't always what they seem, are they? Kind of like a car you buy. You think, man, this is it. Take it on down the road. It seems perfectly fine. You finally make the down payment. You might even be making some payments on it. I don't know. Or you pay it off either one. And next thing you know, you realize there's a problem with a head gasket. Who knows? Maybe something else goes wrong with it. You think, this car looked perfect. How in the world could there be something wrong with it? It looks perfect. You hear a little tick in the engine. I bought a little car, a uh, uh, Ford, uh, that one real popular one years ago. My mind just went blank. Ford uh, Escort. Yeah, I bought an Escort years ago. The only new car I ever owned in my life. I was 20 years old. Bought a brand new car. I was in the military. And uh, so I bought a brand new car. I was heading down to Oklahoma. I bought the car, drove all the way down to Oklahoma with it. It was a great little car. It cost me 7300 out the door. I don't want to bore you with all the details, but... It, uh, it, it, it was a car that, it, it was something else, to say the least, as far as it cost me something. I, I had to, I almost, you know, it doesn't matter. I don't want to go into it. But anyway, here I have this car. I drive all the way down there. It is perfect. It is beautiful. It's red. I mean, it is, it's mine. You know what I mean? All mine. Now, I still owe the bank a few dollars. But anyway, I drove on down there, got down there, and next thing I know, I start hearing a ticking sound. Well, they found out later the lifters were all bad in it. 
brand new car. All the lifters were bad. So things aren't always what they seem, are they? It looked like it was in perfect condition. It looked like it would never fail me. But I mean, it wasn't just a thousand miles down the road. It was already ticking and ready to blow up. And so we fixed that problem. And I didn't have any other problems till finally one day on Route 77 South. as so I was headed to my home over there at the Chenoweth Estates. Sounds really nice. It was actually apartments. But anyway, we were heading down the 77 South. All of a sudden, it started smoking. White smokes filled the air. And I realized at that point we was in trouble. So I left on the side of the road, and I got a ride out. To my, I'm just, I, think I, I can't remember. I might have walked home, or I had somebody take me there. I can't remember. But I left my car sitting on the side of the road, figured, what's the difference? So, you know, those are the kind of things that they aren't always what they seem. Judas wasn't. What about Demas? We talked about Demas. He was a companion, as we said, a fellow laborer of Paul, the apostle. And yet we find that before it's over with, the Bible tells us, for Demas hath forsaken me. Paul says he forsook me. He left the work. He left me. He gave the impression that it came to the point where even he somehow felt that he had been betrayed almost of his trust, that he no longer counted him a friend, that Paul counted him a friend, but Demas had forsaken him. It's almost as if Demas said, you know what, you're no longer my buddy, you're no longer my friend. We don't think alike anymore. Paul goes, but what's your problem? We're both still Christians and I still love you. Demas hath forsaken me. Why in the world would Demas forsake Paul? Why would he forsake God? Why would he forsake the work of God? having loved this present world, it says. And then we said we've got to be careful, don't we? Because if we're not careful, we may somehow come to the conclusion that that would never happen to me. I would never betray the Lord. I would never turn my back on the things of God. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. 1 Corinthians 10, 12, we said. Again, we've noted a number of godly men and women through the years that woke up one day only to find themselves on the other side of the fence. Oh yeah, they used to go soul winning and they used to teach Sunday school. They used to go to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. They sang the songs of Zion and they smiled and shook hands. But that was then and this is now. How's come you don't go to church anymore? And how's come you no longer teach Sunday school? And why don't you work in the bus ministry? And how's come you don't sing in the choir? And why aren't you any longer in fellowship with the people of God? Demoth hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. It always comes down to the same thing. It's always the world, isn't it? It's always the world. We try to hide it and we try to use excuses that somehow pacify our own conscience. Or possibly the demands of others. Try to win their sympathies. But in the end, it's always the same answer. Having loved this present world. It's that simple. But we, as believers, and we as people, like to complicate things. We like to say things like, well, there's always a lot of reasons. You just don't understand. 
And even as believers, we say things like, well, you know, I'm trying to do right and I want to do the right thing and, and I've been striving and struggling. I just want you to know it's, it's not that simple. You just don't understand. It's not easy being a Christian. It's not easy to obey God. It's not easy. I want you to understand that God is not a very complicated God. Now, I know you're going to say, well, we don't know everything about it. I know, but He tries to make things as simple as possible. You can go ahead and complicate everything you want in life. But usually if we're trying to make things real complicated, it's because we're trying to hide something. If a contract is extremely complicated, it's because there's very fine print usually. Or there's wordage that you don't understand. We're trying to cover up something. Man, it's not hard to create a contract that's simple and straightforward. But if you're trying to hide something, all of a sudden it becomes very complicated. I, 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 love, I love my brother here that sells cars. But I'm going to tell you something. I get nervous signing contracts from car dealerships. I'm always worried. Unless I know the man that sells that's why. That's why, personally, I like dealing with Brother Nate. Now, you can go ahead and say whatever you want. You can have your own opinion about things. But he ain't going to steer me wrong. I like to know the man or the woman I'm dealing with. We're dealing with this, this uh, oil con- company. Mr. Hamilton has kind of taken over with that end of it right now. He's kind of, he had some lawyer training, so we, we let him handle all that difficult wordage and verbiage. He'll, he'll take care of your problems for a small fee, I'm sure. But the fact is, is man, I'm going to tell you something. There's some real interesting verbiage. You know, we meet with these guys and we, we listen to what they have to say and then he and I discuss it and... Man, I, I tell you what, you don't know whether they're coming or going or going up or down or whatever. You don't know. It's kind of scary to deal with people you don't know. Dealing with those kind of things. Listen, I, I want to deal with people that keep things simple. And I like dealing with God because He makes things simple. And last week we began to discuss how simple uh, it can be. And we noted that there were three different we were going to look at three different aspects or, or note three different statements that boil down the Christian life to the very basics. And the first one we noted was we must look and listen to Him. It's real simple. We look and listen. We said set your affections on things above, not things on the earth. We went on to say in Psalm 118, 8 and 9, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. We said not only to look to Him, but to listen to Him. And then we discussed the children of Israel and how God had anticipated and desired and longed to, to bless them and to promote them and to prosper them. And yet, the children of Israel would not obey. They wouldn't listen to God. And as a result of that, they found themselves in a real mess. The Christian life is not that difficult. First of all, we must look and listen to Him. Number two, and we continue with our message or lesson, however you choose to identify it, we must long and live for Him. We're talking about simplicity here. You know, it's amazing, as I said, it's often the simple things that make the difference. You know, people are always about the complicated stuff. You know, well, I need to read this book to fix my marriage. I need to follow this plan in order to raise a child that's perfect. And I need to do this and do that. 
You know what? You, you really would be surprised. I guarantee you, if you would simply long and live for the Lord Jesus Christ, you would find most of those things would work out. So tonight we're going to begin by t- t- discussing we must long and live for Him. Let's have a quick word of prayer and then we'll spend just a few moments noting this particular uh, particular uh, statement. Father, we love you now. Help us tonight. We are grateful people. You've been so good to us. Well, we thank you for just, again, the beautiful sunshine and the wonderful opportunity to be out and about. Thank you, Father, for the safety that you've provided us. Now, Lord, help us, each and every one tonight, to be encouraged by your word. Again, Lord, how can we thank you for just loving us? But now, Lord, that you love us so much, may we be excited and anxious, Father, to long after thee and to live for you. Now, Father, fill me with your spirit, and Lord, may you be glorified in this place. And Lord, may you fill each person, and may we hear with spiritual ears tonight what you'd have for us. In Christ's name, amen. So, we need to long for him. Long for him. That sounds kind of funny coming from a guy to a guy. Well, you want me to long for Jesus? He's a guy. Yeah, I do. Yeah, it's a relationship. It's a little bit different. You know, I get a little bit peeved and a little bit upset when people start to insinuate things about Jonathan and David. It bothers me. It bothers me when people say that there was a, 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 a sodomite relationship between David and Jonathan. That really bothers me. You know what? The two men can love one another and they can truly have a real passion for one another in a godly sense, in a good sense. When it comes to you and I, whether we're men or women, we ought to be longing for the Lord Jesus Christ. Over in the book of Psalm, chapter 42, verse 2, the psalmist says, My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? In Psalm 63, verse 1, it says a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, Thou art my God, early will I seek Thee. My soul thirsteth for Thee. My flesh longeth for Thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. Hey, no one can deny that David was special to God. I could feel it. I felt it right there. I felt it. You know what I felt? God is no respecter of persons. I've read the Bible, preacher. I felt it. I felt it. Hold on. Give me a moment. No one in this room can deny. If you've ever read the Bible, I don't care how much Bible you think you know, you cannot dismiss the fact that David was special to God. You can't do it. You only need to read the Word of God. As a matter of fact, God's own testimony of David was that he was a man after his own heart. Let me just ask you now, quickly. Could it be this unquenchable thirst, this insatiable hunger, was what placed him amidst the ranks of the special to God? So I said, well, no, again, I don't believe there's anybody that's special to God. We're all equal with God. Well, we are all loved by God. We can't argue that reality or fact. But then again, can we forget about the disciples and the special place that Peter, James, and John possess? How do we dismiss that relationship? Were they not the only ones that went into the innermost garden? Were they not the ones on the Mount of Transfiguration? 
explain to me how it is possible that there were twelve, but only three got to go that far. How come it was only John, the beloved, whose head rested on the breast of Christ, the Last Supper? Although God is not a respecter of persons, and as such lends Himself to all those that will lend themselves to Him, He is, however, closest to those that are closest to Him. Somebody wake people up here? Could we have an alarm clock go off for just a moment? Because I don't get the impression that some people are really getting it yet. I'm going to tell you something. We have been lied to. Oh, we've been told things like, it doesn't matter how you live. It doesn't matter how you love God. Just God loves everybody the same. And, and therefore, because He loves us all the same, it doesn't matter what you do. He's still always there for you. You have this special relationship with God. I'm going to tell you something. You only get a close relationship with God if you are close to God. You say, well, I don't know. You prove it. I, okay, I think I will. James chapter 4, verse 8. James chapter 4, verse 8, turn there. I'm trying to have a little fun, because some of you look like you're ready to fall asleep out there. Come on now. (laughs) James chapter 4, verse 8. Hey, listen, why in the world would I long or thirst after God if it didn't benefit me? Man, if I go out and live in the world and do whatever I please and enjoy myself and enjoy my flesh and feed that flesh and still have all the benefits that you, separated from the world and sanctified unto God, have, then why in the world would I lend myself to God only? I'd fill my flesh. I'd fulfill my flesh. I'd meet my every need. I'd do whatever I choose. And then when I got in trouble, I'd just say, God, rescue me. God, heal me. God, take care of me. God, meet every one of my needs. You are obligated from your word. But you and I both know that's not true. But we live like that. And we permeate that mentality and that philosophy and ideology amongst our young people. We're so concerned and we want to emphasize grace so much that we forget about responsibility. Read a book written by a man of God a hundred years ago. Notice the difference from what you hear from the pulpits of today. And then wonder why America is only, only a fraction of what it used to be. And why the church has no power like it used to have. Holiness has been dismissed. Notice James 4.8. Draw nigh to God, and He will draw nigh to you. Whoa, 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 wait a second. We mean God will draw nigh to me. When you draw nigh to Him, He'll draw nigh to you. Listen, last time I checked, that means He's closer to you and you're closer to Him. Now listen, I'm going to be honest with you. I've showed this to all of you before, probably, most of you, but I don't necessarily believe it's the way that you think it says it here. Now, if that didn't make sense to you, it didn't make sense to me either, but let me show it to you. Joshua, come on up here. Come on up here. Just stand right there a second. Joshua, I'll tell you what. No, go over here and sit in that chair. Sit in that chair right there. Joshua, Joshua, you've got to slide that chair up there because they can't see you. There you go. He's strong. Look at that. That chair weighs, I think, 125 pounds. You see, just pick it up like nothing. 
He is a chip off the old block. <laughs> but nonetheless, Joshua's going to represent God, okay? He represents God. Now, the Bible says what? Read it to me. Uh, let's see, who's got the Bible? Who's got it open? Dean's got it. Yeah, Dean, read that. Read just real slow the first three words, I think. Four words. Okay? Draw nigh to God. That's what it says, right? I'm going to draw nigh. And what? And he will draw nigh to you. Okay. There you go. He's closer to me now. That's the verse. God doesn't have to get up out of his seat and come closer to me. He's seated on his throne. He's always right where he's always been. But when I draw nigh to God, he draws nigh to me. Now, wait a second now. You mean that he can be closer to you than he is to someone else? Yes, absolutely. And I can be closer to him than somebody else is to him. But that doesn't mean that everyone doesn't have equal opportunity and access to him. What that means is that as I draw nigh to Him, He draws nigh to me. But if I don't draw nigh to Him, guess what? He ain't drawn nigh to me. Now listen, I'm not, I'm not trying to you know, start a fight. or, you know, I'm just trying to say what the Bible teaches. And I'm telling you today that, it, that I believe today that Peter, James, and John drew nigh. And therefore, they were able, they were close enough that when he entered into that closest, to that most secret place there, they were close by. Well, come time for Mount Transfiguration, they were on his heels, man. Where are you going, Jesus? You ain't going nowhere without us, are you? We're going to be with you right here. We're staying nigh to you. And as a result, he was nigh to them. Same thing with Paul. And same thing with you. You're only as close to God as you want to be. That's up to you. And listen, I'm not, again, I know God's no respecter of persons. That means that every one of us have equal access to God. Every one of us can draw nigh to God. Every one of us can experience the intimacy and the, the, the communion with God that only comes when we long and thirst after Him. But you have to draw nigh. Thanks, Josh. Let me put that chair back, would you please? Thank you. I would pick it up. It's no problem for me, but... See, I believe David was that kind of person. He had a longing for God. Again, in Psalm 143, verse 6, the Bible says, I stretch forth my hands unto thee. My soul thirsteth after thee as a thirsty land, it says. Boy, he longed after the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the picture described for us in the passage is one of a thirsting man. You know, one who's crossed the dry and barren desert without water and now stands desperate for a drop of the life-saving elixir. I've got to get a drink. I'm so thirsty. I've got the taste of him. In other passages, the desire and longing that we're told about or described by God is that of hunger. Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. See, there's a hunger that the man of God or the woman of God possesses. A hunger. 
A hunger that's not satisfied with the world's sweets. I didn't bring them, did I? I put together this beautiful illustration. An amazing example. In one jar, I had a bunch of candy. In the other, broccoli. Well, let me ask you, brother. If you had your choice right now between a jar of candy, I mean mixed candy, beautiful candy, or delicious broccoli, which would you choose? The candy. I have to, an honest man in God's house. Praise the Lord. <laughs> we found an honest man. All right. <laughs> And honestly, let's just be honest, most young people would assume, take the same thing. Most, most adults would even, if they found the right piece of pie or the right piece of cake, it would be very tempting not to take that, which was sweet. The only thing that will really satisfy the believer, however, the only thing that quenches the thirst and satisfies the hunger is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. The heavenly delicacies. See, Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. The fact is that the man or woman of God need never thirst or hunger. You, shouldn't, you don't ever have to. I don't ever have to. We're not talking about physical bread now, are we? But later on, we do learn that man does not live by bread alone. Jesus is the bread of life. He is the living water, the Bible says. So here's the deal. The problem isn't a lack of provision, but a lack of partaking. The typical child of God is content to feast on a diet of worldly junk food. even though God has provided a menu of nutritious value. We're just, we're content. The Bible tells us in Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, He gave some apostles and some prophets and some, excuse me, some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. That's the building up. He'd have us edified. He'd have us built up. But in a lot of cases, many cases, we're committed to a steady diet of flesh and carnality. And that's just a reality. Again, the child says, or the, the young man says, I'll take the candy. It tastes good. I enjoy it. Sadly, that's the prevailing picture of our Christian culture today. Most are content with a steady diet of sugar or flesh. I toured the Christian bookstore the other day. I was out running around and I had an opportunity to stop by a Christian bookstore. I was amazed at how many books addressed felt needs. And, and how many books on the shelves were self-help topics. I, I just was kind of shocked. I, I was kind of surprised. As a matter of fact, can I be as blunt to say this? I was shocked how many books were about sex. Can I say that, even though it's everywhere in our culture? Can I, can I say that and be honest enough? 
to say that everywhere I turned in that bookstore, whether it was with the young people, whether it was with the adults, no matter where I was in that bookstore, something came up about that. Now, I thought there's something very strange and something very sordid about that in a Christian bookstore. These books are selling or they wouldn't be on the shelves. What's that say about us today? All these self-help books, all these felt needs, all these issues that are supposedly worldly issues seem to be creeping into the Christian life, obviously. See, it seems to me that we've become spiritually shallow, emotionally weak, and personally handicapped. That's my personal view. It just seems that way to me. And you say, that sounds kind of harsh. But then again, let me ask you something. I think you'd have to admit that, the, that most are very, just are, are rocked emotionally by the slightest winds of trouble today. They're spiritually derailed with the least sign of difficulty. You notice those things? Well, what happened to brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so? What's going on with this? Why'd that church close down? How's come this situation? And it's usually something almost ridiculous, to say the least. What is wrong with us? When's the last time that you fed on something that would build you up spiritually? I mean, do you use a devotional or some kind of study to mine the more precious nuggets of truth that are buried in the Word of God? Do you do that? I mean, do you spend time memorizing Scripture so that you don't fall into the natural tendency to fulfill the lust of the flesh? I mean, do you regularly discuss spiritual matters with another brother or sister in Christ? Do you have a list of books that you're scheduled to read that will better equip you for the journey that God has for you? I mean, what... What goals do you set spiritually? What are you feeding on that builds you up? Well, I I have to prepare a Sunday school lesson every week. So what? So what? That doesn't mean that... that's That's not developing a relationship with God. That's fulfilling a responsibility. I can only imagine if you went to your wife and said, Now listen, when I promise to marry you, I promise to kiss you once a day hug you twice a day, and I promised that I would, that I would say good night and, and, and good morning. So therefore, t- right now, here's your kiss. And here's one hug. Because I'm going to be very busy today, let me get my second one in. And every day you go to her and you do exactly what you promised to do. It's part of the contract. It's going to get done. She wouldn't be very happy with that. Because you have to create a Sunday school lesson or a bus program every week. Don't think for a minute that God's satisfied with that as your relationship. Are you thirsty to know God better tonight? You know why I believe God put me here? Listen to what I'm going to say to you closely now. Because when I was 14 years old, I had a thirst. It didn't start last year. 
And he says, well, when did you get saved? I don't care. I'm telling you now I had a thirst. I'm asking you young people, you got a thirst? I'm not asking do you have a girl or boy you're interested in. I'm not asking do you, you, you worry about not pleasing your mom or dad or not pleasing your youth directors. I'm asking you got a thirst for God. See, that thirst for God will determine the direction you go in your life. Your mom and daddy's expectations won't be enough to hold you in tow. You'll break their heart because sooner or later you'll want what you want more than you want what they want. You've got to have a thirst. You know what? Young people don't develop a thirst by accident usually. They catch the vision of it. They, they see what it's like. They've tasted it a little bit in their lives. They've experienced some personal victories. And as a result of that, they start to develop something. They see mom and dad's life. And they see what God's doing in your life as a result of your thirst. If you don't have a thirst, your kids will not have a thirst. Almost always. Unless it's just God's grace. Simply stepping in. But God has already outlined how we're to live our lives. And if we demonstrate that thirst, almost inevitably, somehow, some way, they'll capture it. Oh, they may stray and they may go aside, but let me tell you something. In their heart and in their mind, it's there. He's there. There's a desire, a longing. Something that will be developed. And ultimately, they have to make that decision themselves. It just doesn't happen again. Even though you may be the most faithful person in the world, young people, listen. Your mom and daddy aren't responsible for your godliness or your spirituality. Grow up. I like how you all want your freedom. And you all want responsibility. Well, I'm a grown-up. I don't understand what they have to tell me what to do. Then don't, don't let them tell you what to do. You be in your Bible. You be on your knees. You be in God's house. You be where you're supposed to be. You be obedient without having to be told then. Be an adult about it. Grow up. Thank you, preacher. We love you. T-Bone loves me, don't you? So listen, are you thirsty to know God better? T-Bone. Are you you hungry for God? Hey, listen, I'm going to tell you what. God has provided a banqueting table today. I mean, it's a meal that's hot and ready to eat. And you know what? The only thing missing is us. In most cases. Isaiah 55 says, Ho! How do you say that without saying it that way? Ho! Everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, come ye buy and eat. Yea, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Do you know that spiritual sickness is the result of a steady diet of the world? Can, can, I, can I say that again because I think it's important to hear? Spiritual sickness is the result of a steady diet of the world. God help us to take the time to dine in the master's table. You know, in the past, cruise ships um, would often have the passengers dine with the captain in the evening. I remember when my parents went on their first cruise, they came back, they were excited, and they'd had a wonderful time, and and they were telling us how they ate with the captain, you know, and the, the captain would have his table, and then everybody had tables. There were seating assignments, and they had to dress up, and, and it was a certain specific time in the evening, and it was so fancy, and it was just premier dining. I mean, the food was extravagant. It was beautiful. It was wonderful. And, and just everybody looked 
as good as they could possibly look. It was fancy, fine. However, over the years, this formal dining has, well, for the most part, been replaced with other alternatives. It's changed. Most cruise ships, on most cruise ships now, passengers, they've kind of made it clear that they prefer options that are less formal. You know, more flexible, overall more convenient. So today, you can find sandwich shops and pizza parlors and almost any kind of food you like around the clock. You don't have to dress up. You just go on in. You can eat a bathing suit in many of the places. It don't matter. See, the transition from formal and disciplined dining to convenient dining is a picture of the believer today, I believe. You know, we're quick to eat the junk food instead of the delicacies because we don't have to get dressed up or even wait till dinner. You know, we, 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 can, we can have it and we can have it now. It meets an immediate need in our life. Therefore, I'm going to partake. We've been conditioned by our environment and the fast food mentality of this life, haven't we? You can have it your way and you can have it now. And that's exactly what the world's telling the young people. And that's what they're telling older people. You know what? Isn't it downright disgusting how many of these commercials are on for Viagra and all these different things? And before someone says, how would you mention that name in church? Are you kidding me? I have to sit with a clicker to change the channel because I can't stand all the side effects. I don't want my daughters listening to that trash. Now listen to me. Isn't it amazing... You have 25-year-olds taking this stuff. Why? Because they want it and they want it now. Everything's about now. And the Christian lifestyle is no different. Don't fool yourself. It is no different. Sadly enough, most Christians would take, if they were told that it's going to take six months of just, I don't even know how to explain this. I'm telling you that people don't want the real truth anymore. If I could give them a set of pills that would cost $20,000 and their wife and their marriage would be restored. If I give them a set of pills so that cost twenty five thousand and their children would be right and back in relationship with them and their home would be a peaceful home, they'd come up with twenty thousand, they'd work twelve thousand extra hours a year if they had to, they'd do whatever it took to pay the price to get those pills to fix their problem, but they will not do what it really takes, and it takes a relationship with Christ. That's the one thing we're not willing to pay the price to do. I mean, I will work overtime, preacher. I will bust my tail to get this job done. I love my kids and I love my wife and I love my family and I love my church. But don't ask me to literally have to thirst for God. I'll do anything but thirst and hunger. Because that's just a little too inconvenient. You ever met somebody that really thirsts for God? I mean really thirsts for God. Hungers for God. 
They're far and few between, folks. Even in the church, they're far and few between. I'm not here to scold nobody or anything. I'm telling you, we better wake up. You, do you realize that Saturday when those souls got saved, that that wasn't coincidence? Who is going to determine the level of their spirituality, though? How are they going to know what's right, what's wrong, and how they ought to live? How are they going to know what's acceptable and unacceptable to God and how far or how radical they should become as believers? You and I, our lifestyle, our living, our loving, our commitment, our devotion, our longing, our yearning, our thirsting, our hunger for Him. Why will they develop a hunger for God if we don't have one already? Well, they won't. They're never going to. I told the story a number of times, but I loved football growing up. I took a football to bed with me every night. I still do. And every once in a while during March Madness, I take a basketball. But the reality is I love football, and I've always loved football. And you know what? If you've heard the story, you know the answer and why that is. It's because my dad had a passion for football. I was just a little boy at six years of age. Running up down the sideline with a football. Here's the ball. As my dad coached his peewee football team. Watching those little kids run up and down the sidelines. Watching them practice. I wanted to be at every practice. I wanted to be at everything. I developed a thirst a hunger for football because my dad thirsted and hungered for it. How are baby Christians going to ever be what God wants them to be unless we're what we're supposed to be? How are they going to long for Jesus and how are they going to thirst for God if we don't thirst? Last, I'm going to close real quick. Live for Him. Long and live. This just take two minutes, but really, listen. My daughter, my daughter loved horses. Still does. Loves horses. Most of you, if you've been around any time at all, know which daughter I'm talking about. Very vocal, very evident. She loves horses. You know, her love for horses always made it easy to buy a gift for her on birthdays and Christmas time. Never had to worry about what we were going to get her, a horse. Not a real one by any stretch of the imagination, but a horse nonetheless. She, why? Because she ate, she drank, and she slept horses. I mean, she dreamed about horses. She used to follow in the footsteps of my grandmother and call me a horse's tail. <laughs> Everything was a horse. My other daughter was... <laughs> if you knew my grandma, you'd appreciate that much more. But anyway... My other daughter loved babies. I mean, she, she ate, drank, and slept babies. If you wanted to make my daughter happy, you just bought a baby. A little baby doll. She was the happiest she could ever be. Why? Because she ate, drank, and she slept babies. Now listen, we're adults. We ought to live for God in such a way that folks say, His life is Christ. 
Christ is everything to him. Serving the Lord is all he or she thinks about. Going to church is their life. What a novel thought. The Apostle Paul said, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Listen to what I'm going to say in relationship to that verse. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Listen now. Death isn't gain in our minds till living Christ is a reality. We hold on to life because we do not really live for Christ. He is not our life. That's why we hold on to life. The Apostle Paul was ready to go, but he stayed back for others. Had nothing to do with fearing death. Had nothing to do with missing out on life. It had to do with others. We hold on to life for fear of death. We hold on to life for fear of loss. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If you don't live for Him, you certainly aren't longing for Him. And on the other hand, if you're longing for Him, you'll certainly live for Him. And living for Him will not be a chore. Because of time, we must close. But let me, let me ask you. What have you fed on lately? What are you really feeding on that makes you better for God? That draws you closer to God? That equips you more fully for God? My soul thirsteth after thee, the psalmist said. He hungered for God. Do you have a thirst and a hunger for God tonight? That's the key. It's simple. Long and live for God. Father, we come to you. We ask your God you'd help us. We do complicate.